0: Hey folks, welcome to the projection booth. This is your friend Mike White and I am bringing you a special episode all about stories from the trenches, the official Sam Furstenberg book that is going to be coming out pretty soon from author Marco Ziedelman. He is currently running a Kickstarter. We'll have links available to that over at projection-booth.com. Just a few more days to go, so be sure to get out there and donate. Pretty much you're pre-ordering your copy of it. And if you want to know more about Sam Furstenberg, you want to know why you should be buying this book, we also have an interview with Mr. Sam Furstenberg. But first up, let's go ahead and roll the interview with Marco Siedelman right now.
1: My name is Marco Siedelman. Basically, I'm a film journalist for about 10 years now. Um, I've written for a lot of German-speaking, a German-language uh, magazines, print and online, and I founded my own online magazine, uh, which was called Heart Sensations. And from there, uh, I went to publishing my interviews in books with my uh, publishing company. That's basically the way. What got you interested in writing about film? Film was uh, always a big passion for me, uh, since, since I was a kid and not, not Specifically, action and horror cinema, which is um, what I am I, focusing with my publishing uh, house. But um, I'm always loved all kinds of cinema. I grew up on um, on, on ex- exploring film in many ways, and uh, it was always a very personal passion for me. I I always wanted to make this into a profession, uh, not necessarily to be a filmmaker myself, uh, but to have something to do with movies. This uh, new
0: book that you're working on, Stories from the Trenches, the official Sam Furstenberg book, this is not your first rodeo. You have done other books before. I published a
1: handful of books so far, uh, and just uh, one of them... Uh, I was a, I was the co-author on, uh, that was the untold, in-depth, outrageously true story about Shapiro, uh, of Shapiro Glickenhaus entertainment. The whole era of, uh, home video and the mid-budget commercial independent movies of the 80s and 90s, I think they are not very much explored in terms of film history. And, um, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting era in many ways that's why i'm focusing on it
0: and tell me you've also written a little bit about uh, one of my favorite filmmakers which is wakefield pool can you tell me about the uh, work that you've done on him
1: i also interviewed a lot of uh, people from the golden age of porn and um, wakefield was one one of the first filmmakers I ever tried to get in touch with because I wasn't able to find some of his movies and I was interested in them and that was the reason to contact him and uh, it was a very nice collaboration. We made an interview uh, with him on my old online magazine and uh, we still have a very nice personal connection and I thought his career um, is interesting enough to dedicate him uh, a an interview book on his own. And, um the the book uh which is called I've seen it all Conversations with Wakefield Pool," is a mixed uh um a combination of older interviews from the seventies and, and uh nineties and exclusive interviews I did with uh Wakefield and we put them together into an interview uh collection which is covering all steps in his uh filmmaking career and also some personal chapters, basically the same conception I have for the Sam Furstenberg book. Yeah, tell me, how did you get involved with the Furstenberg project? Because of the Shapiro Glickenhaus book, I got in touch with many people from the Canon group Heritage, and I always was interested in publishing something about Canon, but for many reasons, I don't think uh, Canon can be covered in a single publication. Just because they have such an enormous output and so many stories to tell from so many filmmakers and crew people, it, it was totally clear for me that um, that I want to split the canon history up into some chapters, and I want to dedicate uh, one book to every filmmaker to to make it to make it a thorough and ex- extended lo- uh, view back on a career. And I saw the documentary, Electric Boogaloo, about the canon history, and immediately I got the impression that Sam is a very nice guy to work with, and I just was interested in him because of his personality, and I reached out to him, and I wasn't surprised that he's actually uh, the the nice guy I, I thought he would be and he's uh, very supportive and um he's fun to work with he's very entertaining a good storyteller and um it's a it's a very nice project to um to be involved in it's amazing to look at his filmography and see that he's the
0: guy behind some of the best titles that are out there. I mean, Ninja 3, The Domination, I really enjoy. I mean, and everybody knows the title Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. I mean, that title, just the title itself, yes. it became famous. He's got a, a wealth of talent, and he must have some amazing stories about uh, making these movies.
1: That's for sure. And um, Sam is is a filmmaker that he's very unpretentious about his uh, successful career. He, he, uh, he's very conscious about, um, the kind of film he, he was doing and, uh, and he loved it. He, he's a big fan of enter- uh, entertainment, Hollywood filmmaking and, and that shows in his movies. And I think they, they, uh, have a very specific signature in, in them. They, they are, they are very, Playfulness and they are colorful and they are adventurous and uh, they they are very perfect for um, for a teenager audience who is uh, who who wants to see uh, adventure on the screen. So, what's your approach
0: with doing this book? Are you just pretty much interviewing Sam and getting his take on this, or are you doing more research on each film as it goes along? What what's kind
1: of the way that this is evolving for you? The main part of the book are the uh, conversations with uh, Sam himself, of course. Uh, We recorded um, many hours of interviews um, and we talked about pretty much every step of his filmmaking career and also some some other aspects uh, of his life. We talked about his youth in in Israel, his hobbies and his um, influences, uh, how, how he got Interested in in cinema and uh, the awakening of the love of cinema, and and basically we talked about every step of his career as an assistant director on the early films of Menachem Golan and Boaz Davidson, and um, about his first movie, One More Chance, starring Kirstie Alley, and then then we went uh, through the Canon films and the New Image films. We talked about every single movie. We talked about the practical side of filmmaking, a little bit of gossip. We talked about his, uh, his personal style of filmmaking, his philosophy of filmmaking. And that's, that's ba- basically it. Um, I interviewed a lot of people Sam worked with, um, throughout the years. There are uh, interviews with actors like Brian Genesee or Judy Aronson or Michael Dudikoff and uh, several others. And, uh, we have, interviews uh, with um, with his editors and cinematographers many crew people assistant directors producers writers with um, many uh, different points of view and um, many anecdotes uh, from different very different characters
0: So we are talking today about this book, and as we're talking, there is a Kickstarter that is going on for this. And I think you're doing it really very smart because one of the the lowest barriers to entry with this Kickstarter is just pledging uh, 16 euros and getting a digital version of the book. So you're basically you're pre-selling the book, and I think that's probably one of the smartest things that you can possibly do.
1: Yes, I thought so. It's, um, to try to, to evolve one step forward as a publisher. Um, basically, we did uh Shapiro Glickenhouse book. I did it with uh, three of my friends, very much DIY. And, uh, it was a very long and stressful process. And, the book was buried a little bit because we couldn't pay um, much for marketing and and proper advertising. And um, we are trying to give the Sam Furstenberg book a bigger release and a more professional release and uh, hopefully reach out to much more people because I think there is a readership for this.
0: Well, and I like that you also offer these other levels as well where you can... Really, you know, you pull out all the stops. I mean, you've got signed posters as a level. You've got, of course, you know, thanks in the book as one. I mean, they're getting the Shapiro Glickenhouse book as another bonus. So you really do a good job of, of these tiers when it comes to helping support the book. Now, when it comes to, and there are some people listening to this podcast who might not actually know some of the travails that go into publishing a book. I mean, you mentioned some of those things like getting the word out, advertising, just the price of print itself uh, is pretty huge. So what are some of the ways that, you know, because I think your goal is around, what, 10,000 euros, somewhere around there? Yes, right. So how did you come up with that
1: as your final goal and where will that money go to I already invested many, much of my private money for the artwork and uh, for for from uh, many costs of um, mailing costs and telephone costs and um, the the research was very uh, I needed much time for the research uh, there was already very, um, very much uh, work you need to pay for a great artwork and then this uh, artwork has to be transformed in a proper book jacket and you have to pay for the proofread. You have to pay for the layout. You have to send um, copies to everybody who was interviewed in the book. You have to pay for refreshing the pictures and a lot of costs afterwards for, for every, every bit of marketing is uh it's it's very expensive uh, in term if you want to have a good advertising or reach out to many people all in all uh it's it's very very expensive to pay this um for, uh, for, uh, for my own private money and um i i would uh, appreciate it very much to to, uh, to reach out to a bigger audience with this book
0: when it comes to the work of Sam Furstenberg, what is the one movie that you would go back to time and again what's the movie that you think people have to see out of his filmography
1: it's very obvious that um, American Ninja is the movie that uh, is the most recognized uh, film in uh, in his career and I think that, uh, that is that is why um, that is why it's an important film to understand the canon. History, uh because it's it's a significant movie um for them but the best movie uh, sam directed and uh i think um i think he would agree with that is avenging force with michael dudikoff and Steve james and uh also produced by the canon group but uh it, it wasn't a, such a big success as american ninja
0: when it comes to some of the writers that Sam has worked with over the years, who are some of your favorite screenwriters that he's uh, worked with?
1: It's an interesting thing that Sam often directed a movie that was based on a script written by an actor. I I don't think there is a significant writer that shaped for the style of his films Or or, or would be my favorite writer. I think, um, Sam's films are very much editors' movies, and his, um, and his most fruitful and, and important creative collaborations were with editors like Michael Duffy.
0: So far, while you're doing your research on this, what is the most surprising thing that you've discovered? It's not
1: the biggest surprise uh, because I already knew that the Canon films are recognized by a big, Big uh, amount of people for for being childhood memories or teenager memories or um, or early experiences uh, in in uh, going to the movies. I'm um, I'm still surprised that so so many people from all over the world are uh, writing to, uh, writing to me because of because of a nostalgia they have with the with the films and. Many, many people, um, are still writing to Sam Furstenberg, um, fan letters, uh, because they are, were influenced to start in martial arts and later on they opened, opened their own school or, or other people who are, who were interested in the films in the 80s and became filmmakers themselves or Israeli filmmakers from a younger generation that are encouraged by the success of the canon films in the 80s i think it's a very unique thing that so many people are emotionally influenced by the films and there is still a lot of love for the Furstenberg films out there
0: so if people want to find out more about stories from the trenches the official sam firstenberg book they can go over to kickstarter or i'll have a link available right on projection-boot.com where folks can go over and make their donation now you still have a month to go and you've got about at the time of this recording maybe about $7,000 to go which is actually pretty darn good i would say having $3,000 down or 3000 yeah $3,000 this is so weird because parts of it are in euros and parts of it are in dollars <laughs> <laughs> so so you've got about 7,000 grand more to go and you've got a month left and i think that you can make it. That's what I'm hoping. I hope that you do this, because it is sounds like a terrific project. I've I've given my uh, 16 euros, and I actually uh, by the time oh. we are done with this, I will bump that up, because this is one that I definitely believe in, and I hope more folks check out.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that, and I, I hope that um, many Canon fans will recognize the uh, campaign, because I think they are out there, and I think they will will be pleased with the book i'm putting putting all of my passion in it
0: folks once again just a reminder to go on out to the kickstarter pre-order your copy of the book and have it delivered to you electronically or via the post in the next coming months here and without any further ado we're going to hear from the director and the subject of stories from the trenches mr sam firstenberg himself you were born in poland but raised in israel how old were you when you moved over to israel
2: actually i i I arrived in Jerusalem when I was six months old, so I have no memories whatsoever from Poland. Uh, I, you know, I understand from childhood, a uh, little bit Polish, but I, I don't have any influence like cultural or memories or anything. I, I, was, You can say I was practically born in Jerusalem. Were you always into movies? In Jerusalem, where I lived in Jerusalem, it was in a neighborhood, not in the center of town, but uh, outside the city. And uh, in our neighborhood, there was a local movie theater. And uh, this kind of theater played in the noontime or some some time in the afternoon, uh, two movies, Double Bill in the matinee. And uh, I, as a kid, I used to go to this theater once a week, they change the movies. Every week, they change the movies. So, yeah, I was drawn to it as a kid. I, I you know, it's hard to describe and to explain why, but uh, <laughs> it's, that's what it was. Uh, I loved uh, to see movies, and then I loved to come back and to to tell the story of the movie to the rest of the kids in the neighborhood. When did you decide to make that your profession? Later on, you know, when I was, let's say. Uh, Teenager, high school. I kept going to the movies, not at the same type and not the same uh, uh, pace. And but I kept with it. And in 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 Israel, you have comp uh, mandatory uh, military service. So I served in the military three years. Uh, so this brings you to twenty one years old. Uh, and then I kind of decided. To, to study cinema. I didn't know, really, if I'm going to make it into a profession, but to study cinema. And uh, in where I lived, when I grew up in Israel, there was no film schools. Today there are. Uh, uh, so I always loved uh, American cinema, Hollywood films, and I have decided that I'm going all the way to Los Angeles, to Hollywood, to study film. Uh, <laughs> when I was uh, here, when I say here I'm we're talking from Los Angeles so when I was already here and I started to go to school I was very lucky I must say, I look at it right away I got a job in a television station here, local television station as a cameraman and uh, not long after I already got uh, a job, in, in my first job in a movie uh, but, of course, then it it became a profession already, and I knew what I wanted to do. Beginning, I didn't understand what it was, but then I understood that I wanted to become a director, and I started to work. So this is, uh, we're talking 1972, 1973. Were your parents supportive of you moving all the way to Los Angeles? Uh, my parents, the problem was not uh, moving to Los Angeles at all. But uh, uh, prior to all of this story, I've studied uh, uh, electric engineering, or electronics engineering. <laughs> and my parents were for sure that I, I'm going to end up as an engineer, as uh, you know, go to a higher education in engineering and ended up with an engineer. And suddenly, I switched to this uh, elusive profession, which is movie making, or oh, you know unclear what it is at all so this was the point of contention the point of friction but not the movement itself but rather how come i do not continue with the engineering what were some of those uh early uh films like that you were working on uh, i started here to go to school it uh, it's a college columbia college and we studied the uh, television and cinema and i started right away to work with to volunteer and any movie that uh, that will um, take me to volunteer, short movie, uh, students, and then uh, right away I started to to make my own short movies, the ones people make in school, six minutes, uh, ten minutes, etc. Uh, one day I met here a producer, director-producer by the name of Menahem Golan, and I knew his name from Israel, from my childhood. It was a very famous. Uh, producer, director in Israel. And I met him here by chance in Los Angeles in a, some New Year uh, party. And he was telling me that he, he was about to make a movie here in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. The name of the movie was Lepke with Tony Cortis. It's a gangster movie. And I asked him to, if I can join, I can come and work. And uh, he was uh, receptive. He agreed. And I came and I started to work with him. So it was not a small movie. It was decent size, decent budget movie, and I was uh, my job was undetermined. I was doing anything, uh, mainly uh, serving coffee and moving around chairs. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, uh, so this was a gangster movie, kind of the type of thing I grew up with. Anyway, you know, because our diet of movies were crime movie, gangster, westerns and then uh, the same company uh, produced right away another movie another gangster movie uh, the four Deuces with jack palance so i was moved from the first movie to the second movie uh as in the art director set dressing uh in the in the movie uh, uh Lepke, I really followed the, the director, Menachem Golan, wherever he went, and I even went after shooting to, to with him to see dailies, to see the, 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 the dailies every day. I was trying to, to, whatever they let me get involved in, I, I did, beyond just being on the set. And I met uh, on the movie, uh, I was lucky enough, I met Andrew Davis. He was the cinematographer in the movie, and later on he became a, a famous director Andrew Davis, and he encouraged me to move on and to really to try to make my way into assistant director. Then I worked on a low budget movie uh, that uh, Charlie Bent produced. He later became. It was the first movie he produced. Uh, Mention of horror, I think it's called today. And uh, later on, he produced a lot of low budget horror picture. Uh, another movie that, It was called The Adventure of Don Quixote. So those were kind of low-budget movies here in Los Angeles. At that point, uh, suddenly uh, Menachem Golan, who I started with in Lepke, uh, put together a production, another decent-sized movie. It was called Diamonds with Robert Shaw and Richard Roundtree. Richard Roundtree was shot. But the movie was to, to be shot in Israel to be filmed in Israel, not here. So again, I asked if I can come and uh, become an assistant director. And again, he agreed. And I went together with him back to Israel, to Tel Aviv. And I became a second assistant director in this uh, kind of uh, heist movie, you know, crime movie, uh, Diamonds. And uh, and from that point on, I moved on and on doing... uh, Uh, my job as assistant director in other various movies. I stayed in Israel, and I was assistant director in many of uh, local Israeli movies, which most of them were comedies. And uh, that's it, all the way up to 79 when I was fed up. I I, I made too many movies as assistant director. So these were the type of movies. Uh, None of them was a big studio movie. The only big movie that I was assistant director was the Operation Thunderbolt, the Raid of Antebe, also with Menachem Golan. Uh, this was quite a big movie. Uh, and and uh, and I also was an assistant director in a very big production, uh, which was biblical story, the story of Jesus. It was like a, a big movie, six-month shooting. It was beyond movie. It was like a six-hour Production uh, movie story or video whatever you want to call it and uh, and this is this was it later on I moved to directing. What was that working
0: relationship like with Menachem Golan?
2: Well, I'll tell you as a, as a, an assistant director, uh, not much. Uh, he was uh, at that point he did not have Canon film yet. He was uh, a directing uh, or producing so, and I was one of the crew assistant director more more of the production crew not not the, the technical crew and uh, so those are professional relationship nothing special you know uh, do this do that and here's your check at the end of the week a uh, relationship really formed when i started to work with him as a director and he as a, my producer and i directing movies for his company and uh, and and the interesting the 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 most interesting thing about his character, uh, I think that he was an uh, in-heart storyteller. This was the, the biggest uh, 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 characteristic of him, was that he was uh, deep in heart a storyteller. He really loved to tell stories. Of course, he was a, uh, people who knew him know that he was a bigger-than-life character, uh, uh, very busy with promoting himself, his own name, and his company and uh, his nickname was the bulldozer nothing would stand on his way in his way uh, on the path to him achieving whatever he wanted to do Uh, so he was a bigger than life character Uh, at some point he was fighting with people struggling and everything that he could do in order to achieve his goal which was to either to finish the, the shooting day, to, to, to shoot this particular show, to finish the movie. But uh, I had a good, good experience with him. First of all, I was always paid in time for all the work I did for him and for his uh, partner and cousin, Joram Globus. And secondly, he was uh, very supportive of me as a director. Uh, usually, besides just giving me a script, and telling me, go and make a movie, uh, he did not bother me during shooting. Uh, I was really free to do whatever I wanted. He would come in and uh, uh, as kind of as advisor or boss later on in the editing, in post-production. Uh, he wanted to see the movie, how, how it was coming along, how is it edited, and uh, giving his advice or his commands, whatever, any way you look at it. But it was always uh, for the good of the movie, for the, for the, to advance the story. And, uh, and that's nice to work with somebody who is uh, so dedicated just to this idea of telling a good story, whatever it takes, within the realm of the low-budget type of movies that we did. What was that
0: first uh, directing effort like for you?
2: I will tell you, I started directing small. I didn't jump into a big movie right away. So I made the, I started in school 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh, that's how you use, you hone your uh, uh, mastery of the cinematic language to master the cinematic language. and then um, I was an assistant director in many movies, so you just you're working next to a director, and uh, you see how, how he built up the movie what, what does it take in terms of leadership or in term of uh, of uh, craftsmanship leadership and craftsmanship to to run a set with many people uh, uh, the last thing that i did short uh, i directed a 30 minute movie this was the last thing i did before i jumped into uh, features and that's already you know Thirty minutes. I already have to make decision as a director to direct the crew, to direct the actors, to 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 make sure that I know what I'm doing in terms of editing, uh, and then spend hours, a lot of hours in editing room and mixing. So all the elements of making movie I was familiar with. When I uh, uh, at some point after. I told you I was tired of assisting director. It was 79, 1979, and I decided to go back to school uh, for a, a graduate school, master's degree, and this was in uh, Loyola Marymount University here in Los Angeles. And while I was in school, uh, usually it's required for the master's degree to make a short movie, 25, 30 minutes, but I have decided to expand it into full feature, one and a half hour, 90 minutes. And, and together with a friend, uh, David Womark, who produced it, and uh, together we, we shot this movie. And now because it was school and because we didn't have the money and all the means, we were shooting, uh, we were filming only in the weekends. And again, even here I'm, I'm working on my knowledge about how you make movies. You know, I advance in the technique, in ideas, and you learn from people. Uh, so when I got when I got to the point that I was given a movie to direct by Canon Film, which was Revenge of the Ninja, full fledged movie with big crew, with a non stop schedule, by then I was pretty experienced uh, uh, in all the elements of making movies. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't need to be nervous or scared or anything like that. You're student
0: film your student feature film one more chance i don't recall a lot of ninjas in that movie (laughs) so i'm Uh, curious how it was moving from that into doing such a a a wild action film as far as that style of directing and crafting that style that you came up with
2: you're correct about the shift the, the the big shift so the way I saw myself the, as a director, the type of movies that I believed at the time that I would be directing were uh, social commentary dramas, let's say, uh, or uh, crime dramas. I, I, I always like crime and, <laughs> and uh, social justice, justice elements. And uh, obviously, that's what I did. The, the name of the movie is One More Chance, and with Johnny Lamata and Kirsty Ellie. It, 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 it talks about a criminal uh, ex-con coming out of prison and struggling within the society to make it. That's what I thought that I would be making, this kind of movies uh, or adventures. And then I was presented by chance. I was asked to do an action movie. And uh, one of the first question, of course, that they asked me, the company asked me, can you handle action? And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, uh, since I didn't want to lose this chance and being uh, young and believer, I, I, I assured them that I will be able to handle action. And uh, more so, suddenly I'm in this whole field of ninjas and martial arts and... Uh, I've not seen any martial art movie before I made this movie. Uh, You know, what was then at the beginning of the 80s, uh, Hong Kong martial art movies, karate movies, you call them, uh, kung fu movies. I never seen any of those. Uh, The only thing I saw in terms of this culture was uh, samurai movies by Akira Kurosawa, which I liked a lot, very much. And uh, but here again, I'm touching a point that if one, if a person is a movie maker and he understands the element, the cinematic elements of telling a story, if you know how to tell a story through a cinematic elements, from a technical point of view, let's say, or from a point of view of putting together a movie, just putting together a movie, it's not a big deal if you understand the elements of making a movie. Now, obviously, many people know that the director in an action movie he does not choreograph the fight sequences. There is a fight choreographer and there is a fight uh, uh, stunt choreographer. So those are the people who are really in charge of putting together, or at least, you know, inventing and putting together the elements of the fight or the action sequence or the chase. That the the job, the task of the director, if he's not a stunt coordinator himself, is to interpret what he sees, what they give him, and to interpret it into a cinematic element. So you know the, the stunt, the, let's say the fight choreographer puts together a big, a nice, beautiful fight, just like a, a dance choreographer will put together a dance. And now I come as a director, I I see what they put together for me. I might have some comments let's can we change it here a little bit? Can we change it there? but again it's not my expertise to put together a fight now. My job is to take it and put it on the screen in an exciting way <laughs> because this is our job. the director, the editor, the director, the cinematographer, but the responsibility of the director is to take it and to put it on the screen and 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 if you understand the the process of cinema, a director can put it, can, uh, can do it. Now, of course, you need some kind of uh, a touch, you know, maybe uh, funness for action. And uh, because if you suddenly are asked to do a comedy and you are not funny as a director, I don't think you can do a comedy just because you understand the cinematic language. And you have to like horror pictures to kind of make horror. So I was already close to it. I love, you know, James Bond, let's say. For instance, I'm bringing James Bond or Westerns, which are action movies. And James Bond is an action movie. and This is the type of movies that I always liked uh, since childhood. So I was close to it. And then it was just a matter to implement everything I've learned through the years. What was it like working
0: with the show Kasugi?
2: As I mentioned earlier, I've seen a lot of, uh, at least many Samurai movies, uh, Japanese samurai movies, and I was always fascinated by the by the style, by the by the I would almost say the dance movement of the samurais of the martial arts, especially the samurai and the sword. And uh, here I meet Ashokasugi, and I already seen the movie. He made already one movie for Canon, which was called Enter the Ninja. He was the villain in this movie. He played the villain. And here I meet him. He's a very tall fellow. For a Japanese man, he's very tall, taller than me. And uh, obviously, he's the real thing. You know, he is a martial artist, trained martial artist. He's also trained in, the, in this ninjutsu, in this form of martial art. And he introduced me. He, he, you know, obviously, he saw and I told him I don't know anything about this subject. So he introduced me to this world. He took me to see uh, uh, the, those Hong Kong-style uh, kung fu movie, martial art movie. He uh, recommended for me some books to read about the ninjutsu, subject of ninjutsu. He introduced me to the weapon of the nin- ninjas, ninjutsu. And, uh, and uh, he was, in our movie, he was the fight choreographer. So he put together the fight. And, uh, you know, he was, by then, he was already a sensei. He was a master, and he, he was a sensei, and he, the students followed him all the time. He had a group of students who worked with him on the movie. And, you know, they treated him like uh, like a sensei, like uh, the teacher. Uh, and he put together the, the fight, as I said, as I told you. So now it was a question if we will work together in harmony, uh, and I will translate to the screen, in an exciting way, what he puts together in front of me on the ground, you know, and uh, it so happened that it worked. Good. It works. It works pretty good. It worked pretty good. Uh, uh, eventually, we know that the movie kind of uh, the movie made it. It was picked up by MGM, which means that uh, the fights were exciting. And today we know, I hear from many people that they were happy with the, with, with the results, with the viewers who, who like this movie, those movies, uh, that the fights are put together in an exciting way. So this was here, that was the combination that he was my teacher in terms of, uh, of, uh, the martial art part of it, the action. And I was here, his teacher in terms of cinematic, uh, Element or cinematic interpretation, if you would say so, and uh, so we had this good relationship. We did not become personal friend in the in our private life. Uh, unlike, uh, I'm still friend with Michael Dudikoff, let's say. Uh, we did not Shokasugi and me, and uh, he was uh, he's very involved in his own martial art world. I'm talking about Shokasugi, and he has few businesses about it, and he was. Uh, busy with building his career but we really worked together very well in uh, putting it together and another thing, good thing about Shokasugi was that he understood that in cinema or the type of movies that we want to make, you cannot be too uh, adamant about adhering to the martial art purity. You know, there are some movies that are which are martial art movies which are really very concentrated within in the martial art techniques and uh, and discipline and those movies are limited to very specific audience so he understood what i wanted to do is to take a martial art movie and make it into a james bond movie so it's not pure martial art but we have chases and we have fight and we have guns and we have uh, <laughs> other elements which are so called general which I call general Hollywood action, and he was uh, keen. He was understood it, and he went along with me, and, and and I of course went along with him when he did his fight. And beside this, he he's a master performer within his in what he's doing, and it was pleasure for me. It was pleasure just to sit on the on the chair sometimes and just to watch him perform what he was doing. You know, working with the sword, working. With his hand with his feet it it was just to me it was like a ballet, just watching him uh he is a master, his moves are beautiful, his hand and legs and uh, were just beautiful, even just to watch.
0: you kind of did something that I would think is very difficult because I seem to remember I liked Ninja Three. Almost even more than than uh, uh, the the, the okay. second ninja film. I mean, it was a great mix of the supernatural with the ninja, uh, the tropes that you've been working with, and that film was just well, it was terrific, frankly.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, here's what I think. I inherited from Shokasugi the idea that the ninjas, the ninjitsu, is a mysterious cult. It is, according to the, the, the Japanese history, tradition, martial art, those were shadowy people or groups of people. They were assassins. It was uh, during the big battles between the, big, the shoguns in Japan, and uh, the front people were the samurai. Those were the honor, honorable fighters. But the shoguns needed assassins, people to do the dirty work, and that's how those ninjutsu ninjitsu and the ninja fighter have developed. They were not honorable like the samurai. Yeah, so they were always in the shadow, in the underworld, uh, and uh, and the way they operated was shadowy and mysterious. At least this is the, the legend today, the way we, we see it today, because we are talking about a few centuries back. And uh, so I, I kind of took it into my heart that those movies, ninja movies, cannot be straightforward action. It needs element of mysticism and mystery and, and unknown and unclear stuff. So, you know, we did it a lot in, in the movie Revenge of the Ninja with Shokasugi. There are enough elements of this mystery. But in uh, Ninja 3, The Domination, because of many reasons, we we moved into the realm of exorcism and possession, which, in my opinion, just enhanced this type of a movie. I'm not sure that the martial art purists uh, uh, liked it and embraced what we did in the movie, but at least uh, it works together, you know, mystery, possession, uh, uh, exorcism in my mind works together, works well with the, the, this miss, mystery of ninjitsu. And that's how it happened. <laughs> and that was the first
0: time I think that you worked with Lucinda Dickey. How was she to work with?
2: Correct. Uh, w- uh, when we started to do this, uh, Ninja 3, the domination, the movie, and, uh, it was determined that the hero will be a heroine, will be a female ninja. Uh, uh we started casting and, uh, uh you know, we saw actresses, we saw dancers, we saw martial artists, female martial artists, and uh, you know, we narrowed down to five or six of the young women actresses we saw. Eventually, uh, we chose Lucinda Dickey to be to do the part. She was a dancer, trained dancer, so which means that she will she can be uh, they can teach her. If we are not using a martial artist, uh, somebody like Cynthia Rotrock uh, so if we are using somebody else we better use a dancer that uh, th- uh, they can teach her the move and she will pick it up very quickly so she was and she had the physics, the look you know, the look that uh, uh, the audience can believe that she can perform what she is performing, kind of uh, broad shoulders uh, this type of a build she was not uh, too fragile and uh she was. This was uh, the first movie we in canon made with her before Breakdown, Breaking, uh, despite the fact that the movie Breaking came, went to distribution before Ninja 3, The Domination. But the order of filming was that this was the first movie. And uh, indeed, she picked up the moves very quickly. Uh, whoever had to show her the the, the moves of the fight, uh, either it was Shokasugi, one of his assistants, or Steve Lambert, the stunt coordinator, uh, she was uh, athletic, she's very athletic, she's a dancer, she picked up all the moves, she did everything according uh, you know, according to our work uh, our schedule, our work uh, discipline um, very professional, very disciplined, she done everything she had to do um, it was uh, we really worked in harmony in this movie, the schedule went along, The everything moved smoothly, especially with her. Uh, Sho Kasugi, on the other hand, was not very happy with the idea that he lost the, <laughs> the position of the hero of the movie. <laughs> so with him, it came to some frictions here and there in the movie. But it was nice to work with Lucinda. And uh, later on, I worked with her again in breaking to electric boogal.
0: I have a very silly question for you. Where did the electric boogaloo come from when it came to break two? Who came up with that idea?
2: Uh, okay, the, this uh, <laughs> there have been many essays written about the subject. Where the word "what is this term electric boogaloo?" And there is a very very good one that was written only about this subject. Where the word electric boogaloo comes from? It's a very comprehensive and a good good article about it. Uh, the the writer really did his uh, job, and uh, uh, he went back historically to the '60s, I think, uh, where there was a television show, and and I think it was a type of a move in the dancing before break dancing, before way before break dancing. So everybody had nothing to do with me, by the way. When I came into this project, the name was already attached. So I don't know. <laughs> but uh when the, when those people that wrote the interview uh they uh, wrote this article, they interviewed uh, Shabadoo, they interviewed Bugalow Shrimp, and uh everyone every one of the two of them had a different version of where how did it became part of the movie but uh, but the, uh, the name of you know shrimp was Bugalow Shrimp, so it was already there somehow. And in one of the version, uh, and, and, and everybody's, you know, it's pretty known that when Canon Film was selling the idea of a second, uh, break in, breaking number two, they already used the phrase electric boogaloo, be, even before there, there was a script. So somehow they con, they, they, they planted it in the mind of Menachem Golan, maybe when they were still doing the first breaking. I don't know where it started, but uh, there are a few versions. Chabadou uh, claims that he brought it with him from his television show. He had a television show before he did the, those movies. And uh, so there was this move, and, uh, and, uh, and Michael Chambers' uh, Shrimp uh, claims that it's his idea. It was part of his name, Bugalo, Electric Bugalo. But uh, as I told you, there was some uh, work done. Historical work done, and this term was used way before the two of them, with the Chuck Berry, very early in the rock and roll, the beginning of rock and roll, of uh, black
0: rock and roll. So I suppose that you probably approached breakdancing the same way that you approached the fight, the fights that you had to shoot, and just it's a different
2: ma- or a matter of different choreography. You are absolutely right. Again, uh, again, we are we are saying the same the same thing again. Uh, you as a director, or in this case me as a director, I have to look at the choreography. I'm not a dancer. I'm not. I, I don't have any knowledge about it. Uh, we had a good choreographer, uh, Billy Goodman, uh, and he put together the dances together with Chabadu, together with Trim, together with Lucinda, or other big dances with uh, other people, and they they present it to me. They show it to me and uh, because it's not even action i don't <laughs> there, there is less that i can say anything about it because in action we can build a little story every action sequence has a little story within itself and i always insist that it will have a little story every action sequence will have a beginning middle and end with a resolution with a mm-hmm. and in dance it's even less so i, I but still we tried we i tried in every dance to have a little story going within it. Uh, you know, Let's say the dancers begin here and they move to the other end and there is a resolution at the end. So also beginning, middle and end. But again, my job is to take it and with the cinematic element, put it on a screen that it will be exciting. So the audience that are watching it, they watch the dance and it's exciting for them. It's beautiful for them. It's aesthetic to the audience. And uh, and you know the, again the choreographers they just put the dance together on the floor they do the best they can do, uh, and the rest is our job the cinema people to make sure that it will look exciting, ex- aesthetics beautiful on the screen. So it's the same basically it's the same approach. There are a few different things nuances, but but basically it's the same thing. Uh, filming a. A fight, a fight sequence or filming a dance sequence.
0: After Breaking Two, you moved on to work on American Ninja, where you worked with two of the uh, actors that you would work with so many more times. You know, Steve James and Michael Dudikoff. What was that relationship like with those guys?
2: When we started with American Ninja, and I say we, it's myself and the producers uh, Gideon Amir and Avi Kleinberger. We decided on an open call casting, which means that we are not only uh, bringing in actors from agencies, but it's open. We just advertised it: martial arts schools, uh, actors with the agents, actors without agents, whoever wants to come can come in. So uh, we saw, like, even just for the part of, uh, of the part of Michael Dudikoff, the American Ninja, we saw like 400 uh, young people, and uh, you know, we nearly. Down. That's the way it works in casting. You narrow down. Uh, and eventually, you, the the best people that you think are the best, you put them on tape. I must say, and now I'm talking about casting. And I must say, truthfully, really, <laughs> that when Michael Dudikoff walked in in one instant, and Steve James walked in into the room in the other instant, I had this feeling that those are the guys. Instinctively, you know, before I even spend a lot of time with them. I I had this feeling that those are this guy, Michael Ludikov is the American Ninja, and Steve James is his uh, sidekick, his buddy-buddy, you know. And eventually we ended up with them, you know. We got them, we, uh, the company signed the deals with them. Now, uh, uh, both of them, uh, Michael Ludikov and Steve James, at the time were very enthusiastic young people, you know, Action lovers, you know, both of them came from, they love action, they love physical movement. So right there on this, on this level, there was no problem. They wanted to do everything themselves. They wanted to perform. They wanted to do everything, stand themselves. They were very enthusiastic. And for, you know, for reasons that are very hard to, to describe, because you don't know how it is, the three of us became very good friends, Michael, Steve, and myself. And we kept this friendship many years later. Unfortunately, Steve James died. Uh, With Michael, I'm still in contact until today. And we're talking 35 years later. And so this is one of those situations that it just happened. The chemistry is there. We all think alike. and, And even in making the movie, we were just like kind of, uh, thinking the same way, and it, it was hard work. We we shot in the Philippines, very hot, hundred and ten, hundred twenty degrees every day. Uh, the work was pretty hard, and but there was this great enthusiasm there, and we. That's how the friendship was forged between the the three of us, and. Uh, it was just pleasure to work with them and the, the two of them are physical and they handle the action and they're willing to take risk and <laughs> to go the distance anything to do for that the action will look good and uh, you know they, they disciplined uh, always on the set on time uh, for rehearsal for working staying as as late as we needed them uh, so this it, it, it was a great experience. In general, the, the first American Ninja was was also a great experience because after a week or two, we, we started to see the material and rough editing and on the screen. And everybody felt that it's happening, you know, that it's, 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 it is happening. That those two guys have a great charisma on the screen, Michael and Steve. When they have close-up on the screen, you can see the charisma and the bond between them, the... Uh, could have really popped up on the screen. You feel it on the screen. You could feel the the bond between them. And all of this while we were shooting. So there was already feeling that something good is happening here. And it worked for all of us. I always
0: felt that Steve James didn't necessarily get his due because I always thought he was such a great actor. And I was really glad to see him in Riverbend. I thought you did a terrific job with him.
2: Steve James came from new york came to hollywood from new york he was a, he was a martial artist a physical uh, guy very great body and a movie lover he had a, he was a collector he had a collection of 3000 movies uh, so called black movies historically from the silent era and uh, he really really wanted to be the next black action hero he wanted to be the next chef. This was his uh, his goal. And he was on his way to do it. Uh, from the nature of things that when we did the uh, American Ninja, he was secondary to Michael Dudikoff. This was from the nature of the story. But later on, he got his other chances. Uh, you know, he was part of the Delta Force movies. Uh, but, uh, wow, luckily enough, suddenly the opportunity came that... Uh, and the right script that he, uh, which is River Band, it had a different name in the beginning, uh, which he played the lead part, the lead role. He was very happy about it, that he had this chance uh, to prove himself. Uh, Unfortunately, the movie was not uh, too popular or successful in distribution. It's a very difficult subject, very difficult subject, especially when we made the movies in the 80s. Maybe today it would have been easier to distribute it. Uh, but he got his chance, and uh, then he continued, you know, not only with me, not only with Canon, making his way toward this goal of becoming a black action hero. But again, unfortunately, he died young, too early. And many people mourn this, uh, this death that he didn't get the chance to become what he potentially could have been. The
0: one actor that it seems like you've worked with the most over the years, who I haven't asked you about, is John LaMotta. How did you guys meet? Because he was working on your earliest stuff.
2: (laughs) John was my lucky charm. I had to read it in every movie. The movie that I told you about, that Charlie Bent produced, that was called then The Eyes of Dr. Cheney. I think today's mention of doom, it's called, I think was directed by an actor, Michael Pataki. And uh, we befriended, I befriended him. And uh, he was a director. And years later, when I wrote the script for the movie One More Chance, that was produced, filmed while I was a student in Loyola Marymount, I went back to this actor, Michael Pataki, that by then he already became even more famous, more... got some bigger part, raised the Titanic, other movies. And I asked him, uh, you know, Michael, I have the script. I have no money and I want you to play the lead role. So he read it and he came back to me and said, listen, this role is not for me. This character is not me. But I know who can do it. I have a friend, an actor who can do it. He's perfect for this. And this was Johnny Lamata. So he introduced me to John Lamata or Johnny Lamata." Johnny LaMata was also came from uh, New York to Los Angeles. He was a theater actor, a musical actor, was a musician, was uh, singing, playing a piano, and a good theater actor. Later on, he got a television series, Elf, I think was the name of the show. And he became uh, the main character of this movie, One More Chance. And we had to shoot the movie a year and a half, it took us a year and a half to finish just filming, shooting the movie, because we did it only in the weekends. And here and there in between, Johnny Lamata got a job here and there in theater. So we had to stop until he finished the show and he was available again. And we really, really became good friends. Uh, myself with Johnny Lamata and David Walmart, the producer, we all became very good friends. Uh, he always invited me to every theatrical show that he did, and uh, and from that point on, whenever I could uh, have him in a part in any movie that I directed, I did so. Uh, he was uh, an actor, actor, you know. All he needed some some instruction what to do. So in American Ninja, he's he's the sergeant in. Uh, in Ninja 3D Domination, is one of the cops who's been killed in every movie, <laughs> a small part, uh, because I needed him, uh, because he was the main, the main actor in my first directorial job. So I feel that I need him with me all the time. <laughs> and so we did, and we were a good friend. And he passed away just uh, two or three years ago. We went to the funeral, but I saw him in many uh, stage plays, uh, even and as I say, he was lucky enough to have a job in the television series, Elf, and he worked all the time, he was one of those actors who were being invited all the time to television, parts in television, parts in movies. Uh, it, was, uh, it was pleasure to work with him. And the type of actor that later on in my career I, 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 I met again, people like him, actors like him, it uh, was nice to work with him. So how does it feel having Marco
0: Zidomon writing this biography of you and working with him on on all of these stories and and documenting your career now? You know, our days
2: in Canon, and I say ours, I don't mean only me, some other low-budget directors or medium-sized budget directors. In the 80s, there was a certain type of movies that were made, especially action and horror, which were... low budget, medium budget, we used to call them low budget, and they relied on the uh, explosion of the home video. The studios did not take a notice that there was a, a lot of money in the home video, in the rental shop. And uh, some independent companies like Canon and uh, and uh, Corelco, they, 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 they realized and they did it. And we did this kind of movies. And because they were not big budget, they, they kind of, um, you know, they they took a second part to the big studio movies. And ev- especially when the, the studios eventually realized that there is a good money, there is good money in this type of movie. So they took over. They started to do, uh, let's say, Ninja Turtles or, you know, the big uh, Stallone movies. Uh, so the studio walked in and pushed out the the independent and our the movies that we made kind of took a second role second seat suddenly and this I'm talking 30 years ago right and now in the last three or four years there is a renewed interest in those movies in the canon movies in the other companies movies the action movies I directed the action movies that other directors directed the Steve Carver the you know, the, the early movies of uh, Van Damme, the early movies of Schwarzenegger, uh, and there is a renewed interest in them. And I'm getting a lot of requests for interviews, just like this one. And, uh, you know, the there was a documentary made about Canon, and the name of the documentary is Electric Boogalow, The Ooh. the Mystery of Canon, uh, The Mystery Story of Canon, uh, and, and even, and when I, when this, after this movie came out, there was even bigger renewed interest. And most of the movies, uh, the, the company, Canon Film Company went bankruptcy. And all the movies that I directed, or at least most of them, went, moved to MGM. MGM got the rights to those movies. And MGM, uh, you know, they came out on VHS cassette and later on DVD. And then, Again, as I said, they kind of disappeared, not completely, but lately they are coming out in new reissue as a high definition, as as a Blu-ray cassettes. So not directly from MGM. MGM is giving the rights to other companies to uh, to do it. And uh, once again, uh, and and since those movies came. Uh, came out again in the the new and, and in those reissuing, they have me as in a commentary uh, audio track, which is customary. And uh, some of them has a they have like a, a, a documentary, half an hour documentary of the making of uh, attached to them. And there is an amazing, to my <laughs> to my taste, an unbelievable renewed interest in this, those movies. And uh, I'm I'm getting used to it. (laughs) In a way, I'm being uh, invited to film festivals, which replay those movies. Uh, I was invited to do the soundtrack for American Ninja, for Avenging Force, for Second American Ninja, for European version of American Ninja. I just finished uh, uh, to do one for Avenging Force, coming out in France, in a French version, and uh, on and on, and interviews for magazines, for websites. I, I just did like four interviews for radio station live, uh, in Australia, one in Alaska. And then among all those people who contacted me was also, uh, uh, Marco Sidelman, And he, he, he really called me uh, initially when he said he, he wanted to make a, to write a book about Canon and, uh, just by the way, I was not long ago, I was in, in Spain, in Madrid, for a film festival that I was invited. They screened two of uh, my movies, you know, and we did Q&A, introduction, the usual stuff that is done in film festivals. And then I met a company who already wrote two books about Canon film, <laughs> in Spanish, in, in Spain, Canon film and the second Canon film. And now they are working on the third book, only one company, Canon film. So Marco told, called me, and he already uh, d- uh, published one book about the, one of those film companies, Shapiro Glickenhouse, who were uh, big in the 80s, uh, Shapiro Glickenhaus Entertainment. And now he had in mind to do a movie about Canon. And as he was starting to work on it, he realized how big, how vast amount of material about this Canon. And I started to work with him, and then he approached me one day and said, listen, making a movie About canon is too big. I need several books. Making a uh, writing a book, not movie. Writing a book about canon is too big of a task. I need few books in order to do it. So I want to concentrate only on the movies that you directed, meaning that I directed. Uh, And he believed that there was enough material in what I did to, to to publish a book about it and it will in a natural kind of characterize what happened in the 80s and the 90s in this type of movies. And so that's how I started to concentrate only about uh only in the work that I did in the on those on those two decades, the 80s and the 90s and we started to cooperate on this book and I uh, he interviewed me for many many hours I would say like 20 hours interviews and then he started to interview other people who worked with me uh, creative people producer camera well, uh, so it's interesting and uh, when i think about it it's not about uh, it's not a uh, it's not an ego trip it's not about <laughs> uh, oh somebody's writing a book about me but i really believe that overall the low budget movie making is neglected uh, there is of course artistic independent movie making that gets a lot of attention. So there are low budget movies, but there are uh, what we call art house movies, artistic movies, and and they get uh, a lot of attention, film festivals, magazine, write-off. But this area of low budget genre movies, which mean low budget action, low budget horror, uh, or another term, we call them B-movies they were neglected in in terms of publication, mentioned in the history of Hollywood. And they were a big part of Hollywood, especially in the 80s and the 90s. There was another way back in the 50s, and that's where the term B-movies come from, low-budget B-movies. But we are talking about the resurrection in the 80s and the 90s, that they were very popular all over the world. So, this subject of the B movies, of the low budget action movies, is uh, close to my heart, is dear to my heart. And I'm happy that now people are paying attention to it. And by the way, there is a reason why people are paying attention to it. And if you want, we'll talk about it. But uh, so, but that's why I cooperate with uh, Marco Sidelman so much, because I, I, I want uh, to make sure that those movies, the work of directors, Like myself and other, uh, Albert Payone, uh, I mentioned other, will not disappear completely and will be remembered. I know it is remembered by the fans, by the people who who watch those movies until today. And they still rent them and buy them and collect them and watch them. And uh, I know that there are even younger audience, young new audience for the American Ninja series. But uh, it, it will be good if something will be written about it and how the structure of the financial structure of the time, what was the, the distribution model of making those movies, what it took for us to make movies not outside the studio system. And uh, I think it will be a great book and I think uh, an important in terms of, uh, of the history of Hollywood as one section of the history of Hollywood. Which uh, really Canon film, you know, is the 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 pinnacle of this. Well,
0: I'm curious. What is your your thinking as far as why these movies are are having this resurgence?
2: Well, we talk about it a lot. We talk about it among friends, among stunt people, among action fiction, action uh, fans. Today, action movies of today they are big budget. They are not big budget. They are humongous budget. (laughs) The action movies of today are. Produced with a budget of over $100 million, sometimes $200 million. That's a vast amount of money. It's unbelievable. And the action on those movies is actually spectacular. It's really indeed spectacular. When, you know, we are talking about the Bourne series, we are talking about the, uh, of course, Superman, Spider Man, uh, Fast and the Furious, this type of movies. The action, uh, even Lord of the Ring, if you want. The action is unbelievably fantastic in in, in the visual, the way, it, the way it's presented on the screen. But, the way the action is produced is by means of a lot of computerized graphics, uh, other elements assisting pro- to produce this spectacular action with digital means. And Therefore they, they also it's called for fast editing, quick editing. So what our feeling is, myself and other people, that okay, you see the action and you see the star within it. You know, okay, the star has few close-up, but you sense this feeling that the stars, the actors did not really fight in those fight sequences or the action sequences. Another director you know, you see those movies and suddenly it jumps to completely different style. And another director, and we know it for a fact, that's how it's done. Another director is now directing the second unit, and they do all the action using cable, using blue screen to, to so the actors will not have to, to work too hard because the background can move instead of the actor moving or any other element, or they put them on cables and and uh, therefore the editing is fast and you get a sense if you when you go back and you see the one of, of those movies that was done in the 80s where we had to do the action physically our action we didn't have any digital means you know in the movies we made if if Shokasugi had to be dragged behind the van he physically he was dragged behind the van there was no no way to produce it we didn't know how to produce it the, digitally, he had to be on the on the ground on the on the asphalt, being dragged behind it. Uh, now, when you watch it, I believe that you you can feel it sometimes, uh, not necessarily intellectually, not necessarily consciously, but subconsciously, you feel that it's a different type of action. Uh, here we have a fantastic, beautiful action with sequences and and elements that cannot really happen in reality. You know. In the Fast and Furious, a car can jump between two buildings, passing over another building in the middle. (laughs) You know, things which in reality cannot happen. And it looks spectacular, by all means. It's exciting. But it misses the punch, what I call the, the... You don't feel the pain. As an audience, when you sit in the audience and you see those movies, you don't feel the pain. And suddenly... Uh, the old generation, and when I say old, they're not old. They're 40 years, 50 years old. They had a nostalgic, you know, when they see all these new action movies, and they they kind of sometimes disappointed. So they had a nostalgic feeling to go back and to see an American Ninja, to go back and to see a, an early Van Damme movie or an early Stallone movie, where the action really happened in front of the camera. And there is a young young audience that have seen a lot of uh, the new movies, Superman, Spider-Man or whatever, any other action movies. And suddenly they're rediscovering this other low budget, what we call the low budget movies. They don't necessarily know that it's low budget. And then they see an action, which is greedy and long shot. The editing is not going crazy. Every shot is only four or five seconds, but rather you have shots of 25 seconds. Uh, half a minute long where you really see the fighters fighting and they really perform. So when you see Shokasugi, he's really doing what he's doing. And it's not a mean of some kind of uh, graphic, uh, digital, computerized graphic, only his close-up and and the uh, close-up of a hand punching his stomach. We didn't have things like this. We really saw the action and we tried to stay as wide and as long, wide shot and as long as we can like a ballet to to really try to show the choreography to 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 feature the choreography. that's why I think there is a resurrection and nostalgic and nostalgic resurrection and other type of resurrection to those kind of movies and that they are being watched again.
0: Mr. Furstenberg, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been terrific.
2: You are welcome.